Here's how Michael Heiser uh, helpfully explains this point about Genesis 10. What's the context of the nations in Genesis 1 through 11? What's the context of the world? And the answer is Genesis 10, the table of nations. We have 70 nations there. They're all Eastern Mediterranean, again, from the south, like in Africa, all the way up you know, to, the, to what we would call the Caucasus now. And so some people will argue that is the context for the flood. That is the landmass that was affected by the flood. That follow, is a though. region. It is not an entire globe. Or maybe that's the closest location to the ark where the families began and civilization spreads out from a, a singular point because that's the bottleneck of civilization that it spreads out afterwards. And as you go through time, later on, you'll have mentions of other countries later on as it spreads out further, which makes perfect sense. This is such a strange reading to say that the flood is local because in the years mentioned in Genesis 10, they hadn't covered the entire earth yet. And so this view says it makes sense then since the people who lived in Canaan from, which these, from whence these giant clans came, where'd they live? They lived in these places described in Genesis 10. Okay, the Amorites, the Hittites from Anatolia, the Hurrians also from Anatolia. Again, you have Mesopotamia. You have the Aegean, the Sea Peoples. They're all in this region. And so their idea is, again, if you take option number two, is like, look, there was a flood here, and we've got the Nephilim issue. I mean, the Greeks know about this with the Titan story. The Hittites write about this. The Mesopotamians write about this with the Apkalu. Okay, they all know about th that there was a great flood. And this flood was a regional, local event. And not every person and not every one of these guys was killed. You had some survive, and they become the progenitors of the Nephilim later. That this is, yeah, this is the theory I think I was talking about in the introduction, or uh, earlier on in the video. This, this weird, like, God doesn't know how to describe killing everybody on the face of the earth, everybody who's affected by sin, uh, with the exception of the, the eight remnant, the everybody in whose nostrils are the breath of life. Like, you have to, the Nephilim problem is interesting. It's fascinating to deal with. It's a whole different video to talk about that, but this is a, 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 a that the theory that this guy's describing is an outright denial of of what scripture says of of humanity being purged as a result of of sin through the flood um it just it it does not fit with the text it is contrary to the text that we get during the days of Moses and Joshua so one of the issues there that he's addressing is this possibility of the nephilim surviving i'd love to do another video on who are the nephilim that's a fascinating question a lot of people are in it's a great question i love the question and and there's so much confusion about it and it's so much fun to talk about i think the bible project did a video when they were like yeah the nephilim or like the the children of angels or demons or something like that and they, they end up being the the gods of the local societies which supposes all kinds of crazy things about like uh, like um aliens angels being able to uh reproduce with humans and 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 like demigods and stuff like that it is some crazy fascinating theories out there about nephilim uh and i unfortunately don't think it's that complicated i think it's um sons and daughters of believers and unbelievers um <laughs> yeah interested in that um but the point for now is just that these people or figures, whoever they are, are listed in, in Genesis 6 right before the flood. And mm -hmm. then they seem to come up later in Numbers 13 when the Hebrew spies bring this report. Now, 
unless this language is referring to people who aren't biologically related to the Nephilim of Genesis 6, which is possible, but seems less likely, then a lot of people would see in this further support that the flood wasn't absolutely universal. I, I don't put a lot of weight on that myself. I'm kind of uncertain about the Nephilim issue, but I mention it in case it's of interest to others. What I think is pretty decisive is the local sphere of reference and awareness reflected in Genesis 10. So it, it, um, if I understand correctly what he's saying, he's not saying that um, God failed to kill off every creature in whose nostrils were the breath of life. Um, but rather that the, the, the concept of Nephilim, and in fact, the language of Nephilim, the, the word itself is, is confusing. There's a couple of words that only appear just in random places in the Bible and don't, we don't have reference to them else, elsewhere. Like it says they were men of renown, great men and stuff like that. Does it mean that they're big, they're powerful, they're strong, they're famous, they're, you know, charismatic, you know, I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's a couple of, of very fascinating theories about it. And it'd be interesting to see, um, I'd love to see a video that he puts out kind of dealing with all the text and various theories that deal with it. But yeah, I, I agree with him. I don't think the idea that you have humanity, some of humanity survived the flood by not being on the ark, that just undercuts so much of this, this conveyed in scripture. And again here, the driving goal is simply what is the meaning of the text? What is the text trying to do? It sets the agenda. How, how the text uses language should be... Yes. This is my point. What in the text leads you to your conclusion? Not not what conclusion do you have that you can that the text can allow for if you read it in a certain special way, but what in the text leads to your conclusion? Our concern, we have to adjust to it rather than drag it into our concerns. Yes. And sometimes we bring a lot onto the text. We have to remember this is an ancient document. So it's it it used language that reflected, you know, the fact that the scripture is is as as not every one of my viewers believes this, but as, as a follower of Christ, I believe the scripture is the word of God. I, I really believe it is God's communication down to the little details. And I have a high view of scripture because I think Christ himself did. But a high view of scripture doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't use ordinary language. It's not like people are going to speak really technically and formally just because God is speaking through them. Actually, the Bible uses a lot of ordinary idiom. And I think the Bible's doing that here in Genesis 6 through 8. A final consideration for that is that within the text of Genesis 6 through 9, there are times where it's awkward to take Kol Eretz as all of planet Earth. And so to make this point, I thought the, the, this video from the YouTube channel Inspiring Philosophy made this point better than I could, so I'll show his little clip here. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. Well, wait a minute. I thought verse 5 said the tops of the mountains were seen. But in verse 9, it says the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. If this literally means the whole planet, the passage contains a contradiction. But if it was just a re... Not necessarily. I mean, if you're describing geography and you're saying, here's... It's like the word sea level. <laughs> I mean, that isn't necessarily where the ocean is. It's just, it's just a, it's just a measurement of height. Uh, you do have the mountains being described differently from the face of the entire Earth. So, if your face is, let's say, the general flat plane of your face, and your nose sticks out further than that, yeah, it, it, it's, it's not a contradiction. It's actually not too difficult to, to understand that you have certain projections uh, of the Earth, but specifically. 
the text does talk about the waters even covering those mountains. So if you have the, the entire earth, the face of the entire earth as the general sea level flat plain non-mountainous areas, and you have the additional mountains beyond that, there is no contradiction. But the text does say that not only the face of the earth was covered with water, but also the protrusions from the face of the earth, which would be the mountains, was also covered with water. So again, this still seems to indicate a worldwide event, not just in terms of horizontal, um, but also in terms of the highest points were also covered by water. Regional flood in verse nine is talking about how the waters had not receded from the region, which was the entirety of the flood. The passage makes more sense. The waters had not receded from the whole land, which was originally flooded, but the mountains in the distance were still seen. This also makes sense with something that is said after this, where it says, the waters were dried off the earth. Okay, this- Let me see something, Genesis 9. Uh, what did he, what was he quoting? That verse 5 said the tops of the mountains were seen. Oh, Genesis 8, okay. Yeah, this, I mean, this Genesis 8, uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 5, this is exactly what I'm saying. You've got the face of the earth, which is the general, more flat topography. I don't say flat earth. The, the, the lower, closer to sea level topography. And you've got protrusions from the earth, which would be the mountains. So if the face of the earth is covered with water, that doesn't necessarily mean the mountains are covered with water as well. Except that in the text in was it Genesis chapter seven, um, Genesis chapter seven, verse 19. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. So again, let me see. Actually, let me read the section again. Genesis chapter seven, verse 17. Following. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark. Seven seventeen bore up the ark and it rose above the earth. Okay, so it's above the earth right now. Does that mean above the mountains as well? I don't know, let's keep reading. 18, the waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Okay, so the water is still rising. What could it be rising over? Verse 19, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole earth were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So this, I guess, localized flood not only covered the face of the earth, but also the mountains, but was somewhat local. I, I don't know. I, it's really hard to kind of imagine what locale is being described being covered in a flood if it's not, if it's not like a, a global thing. But yeah, this, this, this is unnecessary confusion. I don't know what inspiring philosophy in, in Dr. Ortland. This is not, this doesn't seem to be challenging. The Nephilim thing, that's, that's a challenging question this face of the earth and then protrusions from the face of the earth, which would be the mountains, and both of them specifically being covered by water in different verses, that doesn't seem remotely confusing to me. I don't, again, this doesn't, I don't get, I'm sorry, it not, does not follow. The, but in verse nine, it says the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. Mm -hmm. If this literally means the whole planet, the passage contains a contradiction. But if it was just a regional flood, and verse 9 is talking about 
how the waters had not receded from the region, which was the entirety of the flood, the passage makes more sense. The waters had not receded from the whole land, which was originally flooded, but the mountains in the distance were still seen. This also yes. makes sense with something that is said after this, where it says, the waters were dried off the earth. Okay, this obviously doesn't refer to the whole earth, because we still have massive oceans. But it would make sense if it refers to the regional area, and that the waters receded from that region. Or if it refers to the distinction that God made between the, uh, you know, the waters, the when he divides the land from, from the water or whatever, basically, the water was no longer covering the stuff that God wanted to be dry, which could apply to the entire earth. There's no reason you have to, you have to shrink this down to a locale. I mean, if you're just talking about height, you can say, you know, well, God lowered the, <laughs> lowered the sea level back to, back to where, where he wanted it, uh, where the land was still, was still present. This is... This is like intentionally having the most confusing understanding of the text to to come up with. I don't know. This just seems so like I don't know. I don't want to say it seems pointless. It seems so unnecessary coming up with the most confusing way to to read the text to allow for presumably theories about a local flood. Because again, I am I am still waiting for any indication whatsoever in the text that this is a local flood. What in the text leads you to this conclusion? This is just, well, maybe if we squint and don't understand the text, then we can allow, it allows for this conclusion that we already believe. What in the text leads you to the conclusion? Come on, guys. I'm banging my head against the wall here. Not the whole earth. So the point is simply that interpreting Kol Eretz consistently, meaning all the planet, you know, everywhere there's nothing but water that you can see leads to some difficulties in reading the text, it seems. Yes, but if you interpret Kol Eretz in the context of the verses themselves and the surrounding verses that talk about all the animals and they talk about all the mountains and all, all this stuff, if you read it in that sense and you, and you stop trying to rip Kol Eretz, you know, the, the phrase outside of the context so you can compare it to something written in other books or, I don't know, it's just, again, this, I I don't understand the confusion here. This is not seem that confusing. Seems better to allow this language to be more flexible and less exacting and more having reference to human perception and the ordinary way that we This is, I mean, again, this is a really, really dangerous hermeneutic. It's saying, well, you know, you can't really trust that God described what he seems to describe. You have to read it through the, through the fallible human stupidity that does not understand you know, you have to you have to read this as as though you were you were dumb and you didn't think that the world existed outside of a closed door. Like, this is this is not a good way to approach the text at all. Now, granted, there are times in the text where you're like, okay, well, there's additional meaning or specific meaning that that would be had to a specific group at a specific time. But this is not a good principle to just like say, well, you know. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I'm repeating myself here. We even tend to talk today sometimes. Now, let me address an objection at this point, and that's someone might say, if that's really a natural way to read the text, why did no one read it that way prior to the modern era? Uh, doesn't that show that... Is he... <laughs> Him, him saying this, I'm like, I'm, I'm primed for him to, for him to like quote Augustine and be like, here's Augustine's like crazy theory of like, this is what it actually meant. And like, not based on any text whatsoever. Augustine just being like, you know, what would be wild 
if this text actually meant this other thing, like he did that with creation. Where he was like, here's, here's these examples of people reading the text in like the wildest possible, like variations. So I'm, I'm so primed to see what, if he's going to say like Augustine had something crazy to say about this. <laughs> Augustine is such a character. This reading is just a concession to modern science. And in response to that, I would say two things. First, I would say, I understand why some Christians are very skeptical of things advanced in the name of science, because sometimes science can be weaponized. But I also think it's wrong to adopt a totally skeptical posture towards science. I think that's unhelpful. I think we should seek to harmonize general and special revelation, and that means there's no way around the hard task of trying to distinguish between good scientific claims and bad scientific claims. And I don't think it's helpful to have a posture of just total skepticism toward that task. Now, I've gone into that a little bit more in my response to Ken Ham, the second video responding to him on creation. So I won't really dwell on that point here. I'll just make a more basic point. There do seem to be pre-modern exegetes who interpret the flood yes, as local. Yes, Augustine, it's Augustine, less common, Augustine. but you can find that. A lot Augustine, of times they're just Augustine. not thinking in our same categories today in the pre-modern era. But one example would be Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, probably the foremost ancient Jewish historian. And he is not known for having wild and fanciful interpretations of the Hebrew Bible. He's often quite literal and conservative in his reading of the Hebrew Bible. But he references the others who are afraid to come down from the mountains after the flood and who then follow the example of Noah's sons in repopulating the plains. So Noah's sons are the first ones who have come down and then they follow their example. It sounds like he's just assuming there were other survivors. And that's how this passage in Josephus is often taken. Uh, the translator, Louis Feldman, who's probably the world's leading scholar in Josephus studies, takes it that way. I'll put up his statement about this as well. So the point is, there do seem to be... It, it, yeah, but not like based on... Yeah. It's okay. not just a modern... But not based on anything. Like Josephus... Where did he get that from? He wasn't there. Does he have some secret oral Torah that tells him about this stuff? Like, if you want to say, well, there's contrary people, there's people who had other theories about this. Like, yeah, that only counts if they based it off the text. Like, if you're just like, well, Augustine thought creation was instantaneous and then 8 billion years of, like, maturation of the creation. But, but like, based on what? Did he just, like, come up with that out of thin air? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know where he came up with that theory. I, I've never seen it presented. What in the text leads you to a conclusion? What what led to Josephus's conclusion? I would love to know what source you think is I like like you're like well Josephus had a had a great had a different idea too, like okay, and Bill Maher thinks that it's a children's story and it's all stupid. So there's lots of people who have different theories about what happened in in Genesis and the flood story or if it never happened at all. But if none of these things are based off of the text. None of these things are based off of any sort of reliable sources. Who cares? Who cares if, you know, if, if some pagan is like, well, actually it was Tiamat and not, uh, it's like, oh, I, frankly, I don't care what you believe in pagan. <laughs> if you're just like coming up with like random theories you pulled out of nowhere, that's not compelling to say that, you know, there were other, what I would love to see is there were other faithful Christians in throughout history who, who read the text in this way and who looked at these verses. And this is why they came to the conclusion that I have today. That would be somewhat compelling that would be at least you know useful this is well josephus had this wild idea i was like I, good for good for him good for josephus okay <laughs> okay like that doesn't actually contribute anything that doesn't make 
There's nothing, I mean, unless you believe the same thing as Josephus, there's nothing that makes that makes that more, I don't know, more, more reliable way of reading the text, I guess. Innovation, like so many of these things, and I made the same point with Augustine on other matters of Genesis. I mean, it is kind of an innovation, though. Like, if you're, it, depending on why you believe it, do you believe that this is a localized flood because, just like Josephus, you believe there's other people? Previously in the video, it, it seemed to it seemed to be that you didn't believe that there were other people who survived outside of the flood region. So it would be an innovation in that case because you would be coming you would be coming to a new conclusion, or at least, I mean, even Josephus doesn't it doesn't even be saying a local flood. Just somehow there's people who survived in the mountain. <laughs> it I'm sorry, it, this is an innovation. Doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It just like again, how do you get to your conclusion? Actually, it's true. You know, I, this is really true, and I would just encourage people to not disbelieve me until you've looked into it for yourself. Ancient readers of Scripture were not as literalistic as modern-day fundamentalists. There was more flexibility, and we need to consider that. Okay, second argument. It, it, it only matters if there was a good reason for it. It only matters if they were more accurately understanding Scripture. If it's just like, well... You know, ancient readers used to apply the horoscope to the scriptures. They used to say, well, I'm a Pisces, so this verse doesn't apply to me today. Like, again, this is, antiquity is not, does not necessarily convey value. Just because ancient people did something, if they didn't have a good reason to do it, who cares? Envisioning a global flood requires multiplying miracles that are not mentioned in the text. Now, I want to be very clear here that this is not a matter of God's omnipotence. God can do anything. God can totally make a global flood. God could make a flood the size of our solar system. <laughs> if he wanted to, he can create all the water he wants. He's omnipotent. I'm perfectly happy to believe in miracles when the Bible records them. And obviously in the flood story, there's a lot of miracles. When B.B. Warfield was once asked, what is Christianity? His simple reply was unembarrassed supernaturalism. That is fascinating. Unembarrassed supernaturalism. So you say that somebody who's uh, embarrassed by Bill Maher and his claim that, you know, these miraculous things, you know, are, are a children's story and they fall away from their faith because they're embarrassed by miracles. The problem is that they're being embarrassed by miracles and not that they need to have a non-miraculous explanation for things. Hmm, that's fascinating. That's what I was saying. I like that. And I'm not embarrassed about miracles. I think Good, good. Don't be embarrassed about miracles. And you other Christians who are listening to, to, to me or him or whoever... Don't be embarrassed by miracles. And if you think that's enough to lose your faith because you're embarrassed because God did, did the impossible, then you don't understand what a miracle is. Respectfully, that's not a good reason to lose your faith. It's rational to believe that miracles can occur. The question is, what are the miracles that are actually in the text? Mm -hmm. And I think, in general, an interpretation of Scripture is weakened when it requires you to start positing more and more miracles that aren't recorded in the text, in many cases are not implied by the text, and especially so if some of these miracles are pretty fantastic, pretty ad hoc. Okay, another way to state this concern is to say, often an appeal will be made for a, a global flood on the basis of a natural reading. We're told this is just the natural way to read the text. And I can sympathize, truly, with, with people who feel that way. But again, sometimes things get more complicated with time the more you think about it. I've been thinking about this for 25 years now, and it does get more complicated the more you stare at it. This appeal to a natural reading starts to become less natural when you start to actually conceptualize all that it entails. 
and all the miracles that need to be inserted into the story that actually aren't in the text. Let me give five examples. And I before he gives the examples, again, I've never seen this, so I, I'm probably going to be rebuked and rebutted by whatever he says next. It, it's, it's, you're not adding additional miracles if this whole event was miraculous. If God miraculously flooded the entire earth, so it's one miracle that all this water comes here, and then miraculously brings all the animals onto the ark. Again, not every animal in existence. It, says every, you know, it talks about the kinds of animals. Uh, so you don't have to ne have necessarily every single species fully grown, packed into the ark. Uh, there's other videos that, that get into the explanation of uh, explanation of how all, all the kinds of animals fit on the ark, but again, that's two miracles. <laughs> that's two. That's dealing with water, and that's the animals. That's two miracles. It's not a lot. Um, and since God's the one who sent the water, and God's the one who brought the animals to to Noah, it's not a stretch um, for either of these things to to account for every miraculous aspect of. Uh, of either the water or the animals. So we'll see if he mentions anything other than the water or the animals. I doubt it. In saying these, I'm not trying to be insulting or to make fun of anything. I'm just trying to draw out what a global flood really involves. We need to understand what we're asking of people if we insist this is the only way to have a high view of Scripture. Five examples. Number one is the transportation of animals to... Did I call it or did I call it? Is it not miraculous that God brings all the animals? And how far across the earth were they spread out? Just out of curiosity. I, I don't know how, how much he posits that the, the transportation is, is difficult. But if God wants to bring animals to people, is that really an issue? Is it a complicated miracle for him to do exactly what it said in the text that he brought the animals? Excuse me, that he brought the animals to Noah? Like, why is the distance a complicating factor for God? to the ark and then back afterwards from all around the globe. Genesis 6.20 says the two of every sort of animal shall come into you. But it says nothing about a kind of miraculous transportation from their original. Why does it have to? God brought the animals one way or the other. Who cares how he did it? I mean, who cares about the details of the miracles? Like we know that it's miraculous that animals are heading to the ark in the first place. It doesn't complicate it by saying, well, but having animals come to the ark, the physical distance, that's miraculous. Well, no, it's miraculous that the animals came to the ark at all. They don't, like, Mo Noah wasn't out there, Moses. Noah wasn't out there with a, a dog whistle and a duck whistle and a lion whistle, and he's going through all these animals or whatever, and he is collecting all the animals like Pokemon. God miraculously brings all the animals to the ark. It's not, okay. Again, my two predictions are God brings the animals to the ark and God provides the water. I Those are two miracles. There's no reason they have to be broken down into a bunch of complicated ones original location nor back to it when the flood is over it just basically says that the flood subsides and they got off the ark now uh, this is going to be miraculous any way you slice it but the miracles are of an, in a different register when you think about a global flood so just picture you know arctic wolves in northern canada kangaroos and wallabies and marsupials in australia the various species of indigenous <laughs> animals to madagascar a little island off the coast of southeast africa poison dart frogs in the rainforests of brazil uh, giant salamanders in the freshwater pools of japan llamas in the andes mountains of peru and bolivia penguins in the south pole or in giant tortoises in the galapagos islands i tried to think of like some of my favorite animals i love animals we lived in st louis for two years there's there's a couple of really uh, interesting assumptions here first interesting assumption is um 
and, and, I, and I dealt with this in the prediction of the video, of uh, the predicted uh, expectations of the video, is one is the assumption that the Earth would, we know the tectonic plates move around. Uh, and in fact, there's quite a few theories of, you know, the continents were, were formed in a different way. Um, the first assumption is that the entire physical ge geography of the Earth is the same that it was. The second assumption that he makes is that every animal that exists today existed back then. That, for example, you didn't have kinds of animals. You didn't have, for example, uh, wolves that later developed into, you've got, you know, like yeah, some, some canine that develops into like uh, wolves and, and, and foxes and, you know, dogs and whatever. And you don't have like this this diversity that, that comes from kinds of animals. Another assumption that he makes is that, that every kind of animal is in the is the, it, the the location where you find them right now is the location that God got them from. So God's like, oh man, I have to bring penguins to the ark. I better go all the way down to the South Pole to get them. Not necessarily. I mean, first of all, if you've got some sort of Pangea sort of situation where they're not, they're on the same continent, um, that's not, that's not that big of a deal. Second, I mean, obviously God miraculously brought the animals. Why would it, why would distance be a factor at all for God? It's a factor for you. Like if you wanted, you know, if Dr. Ortland wanted to transport, um, penguins from the South Pole, that would be very difficult for God. It's not particularly difficult, any more than it's difficult to, you know, turn water into wine or whatever. So this isn't, um, or turn a, turn a, a staff into a snake, um, or make fish jump into a, jump into a net. This isn't particularly difficult. Uh, another assumption is that God, let's say that God took his sweet time and he forced these poor penguins to walk all the way from the South Pole, all the way, um, all the way to the Ark in, in the Middle East, wherever that was. Let's assume that God forced these penguins to blow out their poor knees walking for years and years. I mean, the assumption that he's making is that oh, this is extra difficult because, um, because we have this event where the, the flood is promised and then the animals get on the ark shortly afterwards. Uh, and I say, what, it takes like 100 years for Noah to bring, bring the ark, so that's 100 years that God could have presumably been moving, uh, you know, herding these poor penguins across, across, the, uh, across the continent, across the Pangaea, across, you know... There's so many assumptions that have to be made um, that aren't in the text at all in order to make this a complicated issue, when it's not a complicated issue at all. God brought the animals. That's the miracle. Congratulations. There's two miracles. God brought the animals. God flooded the earth. Trying to, you know, put your assumptions, so, well, this doesn't fit into my, my basket of assumptions, uh, therefore it's, it's a more complicated, more difficult miracle than, than is stated. Well, that's, that's a you problem. That's not a text problem years they have a great free zoo we'd go to the zoo all the time i find animals fascinating and so you know so i like to get specific with this not trying to poke fun at this but trying to put it out there as a legitimate curiosity to ask how did this happen how did they get all get to the ark how did they all return to their respective territories that says he sent them out on the earth it doesn't say that he necessarily put them back in the exact location afterwards so again this is uh, adding assumptions to the text to make it more complicated how did they cross oceans to get there in some cases how did they survive <laughs> how did god keep animals that he wanted to bring on the ark alive how did he do that by golly that is just that is a real brain tickler that god wanted animals on the ark and he had all of these challenges that he had to overcome he had to probably i mean well then again they would have the problem of all the animals on the ark and there would be you know the lions would want to eat all the other animals and stuff like that. And God doesn't specifically mention the stopping of the lions from eating people, so that would be adding miracles to the text. And, uh, or this is all covered under God brought the animals to the ark. That's one of the two miracles. The animals in the water. 
I don't know, maybe there's another miracle I'm, miss, I'm missing out here. The miracle of them staying alive. But like included in God brings the animals to the ark, like, again, this is, this, is, this is fracturing a single miracle into a bunch of little ones and saying, look, it's too complicated. It couldn't have happened. It, it has to have a natural explanation. It does not follow. It, does, it, is, it is non sequitur. It does not follow. Being so out of their ordinary environment, um, if it was a natural process of migration, why do we have no follow? What made you think it was a natural process of migration? What in the text made you think that? Why are, where do you get that from, that God brought them, that that somehow translates to, well, there was a natural migration and the penguins blew out their knees walking from uh, Antarctica? Like, why? The, the, the issue is that, is that the, the issue here seems to be less the text that is not being dealt with and more questions of your assumptions of what was going on. I don't know. This, <laughs> okay, okay, I'll just keep going. I, this is going to be like six hours long if I keep doing this. Fossil records whatsoever of that, you know? Uh, animals, yeah. If God is bringing these animals and he's, and you know, presumably it's all natural, how they're all naturally migrating from the South Pole and they should be dying along the way and there should be fossils all over the place of all the animals in the entire world leaving fossils all, you know, a trail of fossils unless God, you know, just brought two of this kind and seven of that, two of every unclean animal and seven of every, seven pairs of every clean animal and I don't know why you would assume that they're dying along the way. And how many of them do you think died along the way of the, of the penguins from Antarctica? And how many penguins from Antarctica traveling to the north to the Ark would have to die, you know, statistically for us to even find one fossil? Like if you're like, okay, well, there's 10 penguins. And by the time they got there, only two penguins remained uh, and, and went onto the Ark. So there should be eight eight dead penguins along the way from Antarctica, like out of, out of those eight, how many fossils do you expect that we would find? Fossils are not as common as just because something dies doesn't necessarily mean it leaves a fossil. And unless there's a lot of things dying, there's usually not a whole lot of fossils. This is, this is, it feels like a reach. All the kangaroo fossils are only on in Australia. <laughs> what? Yes, the kangaroo fossils are in Australia. How many kangaroos did he bring onto the ark? Why would you assume that there was like a whole horde of kangaroos? And then there's like all these kangaroos got up to the ark and no one was like, no, only two of you. <laughs> the rest of you just die in the Middle East. Why would you assume that? <laughs> this is such a weird reading. It's not even a reading. It's just like, like what if? <laughs> to be fair to Gavin... Um, to Dr. Ortland, who is wiser and more friendly uh, and, and, and smarter than I am, this is an argument that atheists make all the time. This is probably where he got this from, this kind of Bill Maher sort of, well, you would expect to see kangaroo fossils all the place. It's like, no, you wouldn't. No, not if you actually just read the text and believe what it says. Like, you wouldn't expect a mass migration of kangaroos across, you know, the entire Pangea. Like, <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. He's heard this question from atheists probably, and it concerns him, but it's a stupid question. Not that Gavin's a stupid person. He's not. He's much smarter than I am, but that it is not a good question. Um, it doesn't, doesn't follow from the text. Okay, let's keep going, please. 
all the ring-tailed lemur fossils are only in Madagascar, etc. Where is the Now, there's explanations for this. You can go and read the Young Earth Creationist websites and books and find various explanations, and I'm not trying to deride them, but I'm trying to say those explanations are not in the text. Neither is a mass migration of ring-tailed lemurs. Where do you get this idea that there's a mass migration of kangaroos and penguins? Where does that come? I'm sorry, I'm crying. Where does that come from? Why do you why do you presuppose this one thing in the text and say, aha, the Bible doesn't deal with this assumption that I made out of nowhere? <laughs> I'm sorry, this is I I am enjoying I very much like Dr. Ortland and his presentation. But this is this is too much fun. You have to add a bunch of miracles that don't they're, they're not in the text, and they don't even seem to be implied by the text, uh, especially in the case of their return after the flood is over. So for that interpretation to work, you've got to add all these extra miracles. Second example, the quantity of animals on the ark. The Bible tells us how big the ark is. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's probably not as big as the ark in Kentucky associated with Answers what? in Genesis. Some of okay. you may have visited that ark before. I've never been. Uh, but they use a disputed... Uh, interpretation of the word cubit. Typically, that's taken to around 18 inches. Even the classic Young Earth Creationist text, the Genesis Flood, defines a cubit as 17.5 inches. But uh, to build the Ark in Kentucky, they defined it as a little more than 20 inches, if I understand correctly. So that makes it 510 feet long. It's probably a little less than that. But that's not 100% certain. People dispute the meaning of cubit. So let's give them that extra space. Fine. It's still a lot to fit all the animals of the world into the ark. And so... Except that's not what the text says. The text never says that every single animal fit in there. Uh, and it, you also don't have to assume that it's all fully grown. There's another video out there. I think this was put out by... I don't remember. I, back when I was watching the, the Reformed Calvinist stuff, Wretched TV or whatever, it's called um, Noah's Ark. In fact, you know what? Let me look it up. Let me look it up because this is a really quick... Here we go. Um, so there, yes, there's this video that I saw on like uh, on this on this reformed Calvinist thing uh, talking about Noah's Ark and the, and the sizes and stuff like that. And that there's this misconception that people get from not reading the text close enough that assumes that every single animal is not only fully grown but every single species is uh, is present on the ark, rather than the kinds of animals. And I'm I'm a, I'm a little shocked that Gavin fell for that because it's not unclear in the text but it's it is a common enough um misconception so i'm gonna i'm gonna steal content from this guy's video wretched radio wretched.tv if you want to see it lots of people say there's no way that two of every known species in the world could fit onto noah's ark you know what we agree but the truth of the matter is that the bible doesn't claim that's what happened so if we really want to get to the truth of it we're going to need to see what the bible really says about all this and then ask three questions how many animals are we really talking about how big were they and how big was the ark? We answer those, we're closer to understanding the truth. Make sense? Good. So how many animals are we really talking about here? Well, let's jump back to move forward, shall we? Let's take a peek at day five of creation week and do a plain reading of Genesis 1 verse 21. 
And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. Jump ahead to Genesis 1.25, day 6, the same day man and woman were created, and here's what we get. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, the cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. So there you have a very clear account of the land and sea creatures created by God according to their kinds. Now, take a look at the phrase, according to their kind. What does it mean? Is it the same as species? I don't think so. It's possible that it's closer to what we call family in the typical biology class today, with some exceptions. Keep in mind that species is a man-made definition anyway. Confused? Huh? Let me explain. Let's take the dog kind, for example. We'll call the female dog taken on the ark Bingo, because that's the name of my first dog. Okay, from Bingo and her mate, you can get the various species of coyote, wolf, and even domestic dogs, like the Border Collie, Great Dane, Poodle, and so on. You get it? The different species we have now could have easily been generated after the flood from the information already present within the parent kind. So kind isn't the same as species at all. And a plain reading of the Bible teaches that Noah only had to take the representative of the different kinds of land-dwelling, air-breathing animals. You don't believe me? Take a look for yourself. Genesis 6.20, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. That's as clear as it gets, folks. Simple instructions of what to take and what not to take. And in case we need further understanding of what God meant, he clarifies by telling us what died outside the ark. Genesis 7.22, and in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. Okay, so he's not talking about any sea creatures being on the ark. Not the tiniest seahorse or the largest whale. Because the last time we checked, they weren't swimming around on dry land. He's also not talking about plant life or single-celled organisms or bacteria. No, only things that have the breath of life in its nostrils and are on dry land. That's great, you say. But how many original kinds of land-dwelling, air-breathing creatures were on the ark? Well, to be quite honest, we weren't there, and I don't have the time for each and every detail. But one leading ark researcher did a whole bunch of calculations and was very generous with the numbers he used. He selected the genus level and found that there are less than 8,000 kinds, or about 16,000 individual animals. So let's just round up to say 30,000 and then call it even. It'll make the math easier anyway. Could 30,000 animals fit on the ark described in Genesis? That's a good question. Glad you asked. To answer it, we have to take a look at two more things. The size of the average animal and the size of the ark. Makes sense? Of course it does. Moving on. We can't list every animal, but we've got things from the various bird kinds to the elephant Elephant. kind, from the various dinosaur kinds to the smallest mammal kinds, and so on and so on and so on. So, you take all the young adult animals, because nothing says the animals had to be the oldest and biggest, and you look at all the various sizes we know of today, even from the fossil record, and you do some calculating, you come to the conclusion that the average size of the land animal is actually smaller than a sheep. But let's just use a sheep as the average size for the sake of argument. So now we've got the size of the average animal, a sheep, and we have the maximum number of sheep, 30,000. So are we going to need a bigger boat? Well, let's see how big it really was and if 30,000 sheep could fit on it. Back to the Bible. Genesis 6.15. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Genesis 6.16. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Using what's known as the small cubit, that makes the ark approximately 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and about 45 feet high, with three decks, a door, and a window. So this ain't no canoe or a bathtub boat with giraffe heads poking out of it. This is a huge, seaworthy vessel. The total available floor space on the ark would have been over 100,000 square feet. The total cubic volume would have been 1,500,000 18,000 cubic feet, which is about the capacity of 522 railroad stock cars. So we're getting down to the nitty gritty here, folks. How many sheep can fit into 522 stock cars? Well, just so happens I know the answer. The average double-deck railroad stock car can fit about 240 sheep. Now that's a lot of wool. So 522 stock cars holding 240 sheep-sized animals each gives us the hefty total of 125,280 sheep-sized creatures that could have fit onto the ark. Remember, we only needed to fit 30,000 on it, and 30,000 is almost two times the already generous estimate of animals necessary to represent all the species we see today. 
So it's easy to see that with more realistic numbers, there was plenty of room for cages, food, and even fresh water for the duration of the year-long stay that these animals had to be on the ark. And you know what? Ark researchers have studied this too, and I'll let you look that up. So there you have it. Simple reading of scripture, simple math, basic science. This fallible claim against the Bible is debunked. There we go. So that was the video. I saw it, saw it back in the day. It's, uh, I enjoy that video. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't think, um, I think that some of this might stem from a misunderstanding of the text that Dr. Ortland has with confusion of, of kinds and species and, like, what exactly does that mean? Um, and a bunch of assumptions about how many, how many different kinds of animals there are now versus how many different kinds of animals there were back then. So I'll let it continue. Uh, the way this breaks down is people have to talk through how do you define the biblical word kind. Older young earth creationists will talk, you know, it'll be like 30,000 an total animals, something like That's that, saying, including yeah. all the pairs. Uh, more recently, though, they bring the number way down. So Answers in Genesis and some other young earth creationist ministries will have just a couple thousand animals sometime. And the way they're able to do that is by defining the word kind very broadly. So one article at Answers in Genesis uses the word kind as similar to the word family in our modern taxonomy of animals. So that's an even broad, the word family in, in modern classification of animals is even broader than the term species. Uh, sorry, e yeah, even broader, well, certainly broader than species, even broader than the word genus. Uh, I'll, I'll put this up. You can see in the yellow uh, uh, on the picture I'm putting up. This would mean there's like one dog animal or one cat animal. So basically what this results in is extremely rapid evolution after the flood, lightning speed evolution. Well, not in the sense that one might understand evolution. Evolution is often described as, as the adding of genetic, uh, genetic code, genetic peculiarities. Whereas in something like this, like a canine, you would actually be saying, well, the genetic code is, uh, is already there, but it's pared down. This, this would be like selective breeding or something like that. So if you've got, you know, um, people today intentionally, I'm sure God can do it a lot better and a lot faster. Uh, people today can intentionally breed specific kinds of dogs that you would say didn't exist a hundred years ago or something like that. It doesn't actually, um, doesn't actually take, take that long, but I mean, especially if God's involved in this, but you know, let's keep going. Evolution. A little more than 4,000 years ago, you have just two animals of the cat kind. And then today you have the dozens of species and all the different genuses that descend from just those two animals, lions and tigers and cheetahs and jaguars and panthers and leopards and lynxes and bobcats and pumas and wildcats and all the way down to domestic cats. They all come in less than 5,000 years from two animals uh, on the ark. Same with the horse family or kind. You get zebras and donkeys and all the different kinds of horses from those two animals in less than 5,000 years. In the dog kind or family, you get all the different dog species, uh, uh, wolves, coyotes, foxes, jackals, etc. All So, you know, in incredible lightning speed evolution. Not really, no. It, it's not. Again, if you, if, you, if you can intentionally breed new, new species of dogs, in the course of a couple decades, a couple generations, it's not that hard to, to think that when God spread out the animals over all the earth, again, this is the one miracle, there's two miracles, there's, there's the animals and there's, and there's the water, and the, and the animals bring them to the ark and then spread them out on the earth. It's not, it's not that difficult, um, but we'll keep going. And it's kind of ironic that the people who believe in the most powerful form of evolution 
are often the young earth creationists because they have to squeeze it into this tiny time frame. And even though sometimes they won't use the word evolution, you know, here's another quote I'll put up from an Answers in Genesis article. It's not using the word evolution, but it's the same mechanisms. The reason the term evolution is usually avoided here is because there's two completely different processes that are often conflated under that term to, to, try to, to try to take the imaginary one and bolster it by the evidence for the actual one. So the actual form of real evolution is when you have an abundance of kind of genetic code, and as a result of this genetic code, you breed different strains. You have all the code is already there, and, it, and only portions of the code are transmitted on to different, to different groups versus the imaginary form of evolution, in which case you've got genetic code and new genetic code, new functional beneficial genetic code just develops, and you have things that, that were never, pre, never previously present in the genetic structure all of a sudden coming out of nowhere, where you have like a single-celled organism, an amoeba, turns into a, a complex like jaguar or something like that versus something where you've got um a a canine that gives birth to a bunch of different uh, litter and those litters each give birth to different litters of their own and some of them end up being stronger and faster or leaner and some of them end up being bulkier and then as a result of that you get pit bulls over here you get german shepherds over here and you get you know different kinds of dogs over here you get you know so what's being described uh, with the term evolution, the reason the term evolution is is being avoided, particularly in something like Answers in Genesis, is that it's often used. People will say, "Well, look, you can breed different kinds of dogs. You can breed different kinds of strains of uh, strains of you know corn or something like that." Uh, so this is proof that that the exact opposite of that process, the creation of of new genetic genetic code, is 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 real. So yeah, usually the term evolution is avoided when describing something like like breeding or, or the, um, or the branching out from, from something that contains all genetic material to things that contain specific, uh, portions of that genetic material. Genetic drift, natural selection, mutation, etc. Now I am not trying to pick on answers in Genesis here, uh, or isolate them. Sometimes I'll, nor, nor am I trying to say this is the only way you could work as a, as a young earth creationist. It's one representative example. Sometimes when I quote from a young earth creationist source, people will get angry and say, I'm not quoting from the best of the movement. I don't always know what the best is. And I think it's fair game to quote from what's commonly known and what's influential and what's out there. But if you don't have lightning speed evolution, then you have to have more species on the arc. And so there's a trade-off here one way or another, either more animals or more evolution. However, you negotiate that trade-off, it's really hard to imagine all land-dwelling vertebrate animals getting onto the ark. Especially, so you have to get more miracles, one way or another, that, that aren't in the text. Just the two. Animals and water. And that's especially true because of what I think is probably the most underrated difficulty, and that's number three example that I'm going to give, and that's the care for these animals while they're on the ark. So if you've ever worked at a zoo, you know how much goes into caring for animals, how easy disease can be and so forth, even if you've just had a pet. <laughs> we're thinking about getting a dog, and so we're thinking about all this. Okay, in this case, you have all the animals of the entire world, at least in their kind, and you have eight people caring for them for more than a year in extremely taxing conditions. So you got the seven days of loading up and then about 370 days when they're on the ark, if you add up all the different events together. And there's only eight people, Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives, and they have to provide 
uh, ventilation, sanitation, proper temperatures, fresh food, and fresh water for all of these animals, all the animals of the world for over a year. This is this is like a bizarre train of thought where it's like, yeah, God brought all the animals miraculously, but then he didn't sustain them. Like, yeah, it, it has, you know, God's like, well, I'll bring you all the animals, but I'm not going to be involved in keeping them alive. Mm -mm. That's a different miracle. And you can't expect that of me. That's just adding complications, you know. It's like, well, no, again, there's two miracles. He, you know, he brings the animals and he distributes them. It's, it's, that's one miracle. And the other miracle is, is providing all the water. So if God is, God is saying, okay, look, I'll, I'll, I'll bring all these animals. I'll put them on the ark, keep them alive, take them off the ark. That's not that hard. I mean, for God, <laughs> for a human, like it's, it's strange that Gavin keeps coming back to this idea of like, man, it would be really hard for a human or for, for, you know, ringtail lemurs to get all the way from wherever they are all on their own. It would be really hard for humans to take care of all these other people. That would be an additional miracle of God. I was like, no, no. Again, if it's God who brings them on the ark and then God who distributes them afterwards, that's one miracle. If you think that through, <laughs> let's not get too graphic, you know, um, but you think through all that that is involved. Uh, with so it's just just thinking of the food and water you have to supply i mean some of these animals are special climate animals like polar bears and they have to live alongside animals that are used to the desert some of them are special diet animals like koala bears which eat eucalyptus tree leaves which are only grown in australia uh, one of the big challenges is for insects and tidal pool creatures and other small invertebrate animals you'd almost need something like what are the equivalent of modern day aquariums for taking some care of many of these smaller animals. Now, whether insects are on the ark is a disputed question. A lot of people, young earth creationists will say, well, some insects may have been in that kind of thing. One, but you know, there's different explanations. The point is whatever explanation you go with, you've got to go way beyond the text to try to make it work. Um, yeah. You've got to believe that God prevented the lions from eating Noah and his family, right? You have to go way beyond the text to believe that God prevented the animals from all eating each other and from killing each other. And God prevented the venomous cobra from striking, you know, from killing, you know, Noah's kids or you know, whatever. Like, or this is all just part of God taking care of the animals and then God takes care of the water. This, like, yeah, this is inclusive in the, in the text. You set up boundaries and say, well, you know, God... Let's assume that he believes that God brought the animals miraculously, but why would he, you know, then say, okay, well, now that the animals are on the boat, chaos. Like, if you put a bunch of animals in a room together, and they've never seen each other, and especially they're different kinds of animals entirely, man, it might take a miracle to kind of keep them together. Well, I guess, I mean, <laughs> I, I, what animals do you believe were actually on the ark? Just out of curiosity, if you don't believe that there was a miracle in taking care of them, providing for, providing them, and maybe, you know, keeping them from killing each other, keeping them alive, if you don't believe that God did that, and that was a miracle that's not mentioned in the text, therefore you don't want to assume that it happened, what, what happened, what animals do you actually think were on the ark? Like, what combination of animals do you think would not have to have this kind of special care, this kind of uh, restriction of their violent impulses, their God herding them onto the ark, like, what i mean first of all there's a question of like what animals do you think were on the ark <laughs> you could put two cats in a room and they won't get along what <laughs> what creatures do you think were on the ark that got along just fine without a miracle um for example one theory that comes from Bede in the early church or late patristic early medieval church and is picked up in the book the genesis flood is that all the animals hibernated 
So you can see this theory as it's put up. This book, The Genesis Flood, is one that's often credited with launching the modern young earth creationist movement as such. It has this proposal that God instructed certain of the animals through impartation of a migratory directional instinct, which would afterward be inherited in greater or lesser degree by their descendants to flee from their native habitats to the place of safety. Then, having entered the ark, they also received from God the power to become more or less dormant in various ways in order to be able to survive for the year in which they were to be confined within the ark while the great storms and convulsions raged outside. So now God can do that. God is omnipotent. My point that I'm trying to raise here is that that goes beyond the text. So you're saying that nothing in the text leads you to believe that conclusion. Interesting. That's... I wonder where you would get a question like that from. What in the text leads you to believe that the animals hibernated? What in the text leads to your conclusion? That is a great question, Dr. Orton. Uh, a, a global migratory instinct, universal hibernation, you know, all of this requires us to start stacking up more and more miracles. And if you don't have those miracles, you need some other kind of miracle to explain how do eight people for more than a year care for all the animals of the entire world. And what I'm trying to help us see is not I'm not trying to make fun of this view or make someone feel like they're being uh, mocked or something like that. How, how many animals do you think would have, how many animals exactly do you think wouldn't require a miracle for eight people to care for for a year? Ten? Like a, like a barn load or I mean, without modern equipment or whatever? Like how, how many people do you think you're like, okay, well, you know, God only had like what 20 animals on the ark because that's how much eight people could care for. I don't know. I'm just curious. Like how many animals do you think were on the ark? It's not my intention, but I'm trying to help us feel is to reduce the sense that this is the only way you can read this text and that this is the natural reading. Because if you start thinking it through, it seems a little less natural. The more So either it was a miracle that God got the animals to the ark and took care of them, or there was no miracle involved, in which case there were not very many animals on the ark. It seems to be kind of the, the, the pick, pick and choose, which one do you want? Or you think about it. Example four, which I get from David Snoke's helpful book that addresses this, is where did all this water come from? To cover the Himalayan mountains. And okay, you remember I said there's two miracles? There's the animals and there's the water. And now before this, obviously I talked about, um, you know, the, the, the antediluvian climate maybe being different, the firmament being a watery thing, potentially underground vaults of water, all of these things uh, I've heard people kind of use to explain where did the water come from? It's a good question. Where did the water come from? Well, where did all water come from, really? It's from God, but, you know. Uh, again, yeah, two miracles, the water and the animals. So is there anything that would make God making all this water come difficult? And all the mountains of the world, the Andes Mountains, the Rocky Mountains, you'd need water that would go about six miles above sea level. We just don't have that. That, that quantity of water simply does not exist. So you'd either have a miraculous creation and destruction of additional water, or you'd have the extremely rapid formation of mountains in connection with the flood or soon thereafter, so that Mount Everest is just a few thousand years old. I've heard people explain, again, like these underground vaults of water and, again, the, the firmament and the, and the water and the atmosphere, that all the water still exists and then it's all underground somewhere, that it's really hard to know what's really deep down within the earth because we can only dig, we can only explore so far down. It's really difficult to, to go down um, a, certain, a certain amount. Now, again... Could that be an explanation that there's a whole bunch of water under the crust of the earth somewhere? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like, I haven't been down there. Um, 
it's no less miraculous if God made the water come out of the earth and then put it back down into the center of the earth. It'd be no ma- less miraculous if God was like, I don't know, multiplied bread and fish. <laughs> if he multiplied water and then got rid of it afterwards, it's, I don't know, that doesn't sound like a particularly difficult um, stretch. Again, two miracles. And the animals and the, and the water. So far, we're, we've gotten to, to miracle number two. So this would mean this kind of global cataclysmic reshaping of geology uh, to create these deep basins in the ocean to drain the water into and to shoot up these mountains super fast and fast basically immediately now that's possible but again it's just going beyond the text all the text credits for ending the flood is a wind that god sends to make the waters subside uh, fifth example would be what how do plants and trees survive? What about water animals? You know, if you mix, I've, I read a lot of the different theories about how the fish and water animals can survive when you mix fresh water and salt water, and there's all kinds of interesting theories about that. Another question you have to explain is how do trees and plants and and then insects come in with this as well? How did they all survive? One of the theories that's referenced in the Genesis flood book is the idea of floating vegetation rafts, and some people say that. Um, the insects could have been on those. So, you know, again, I'm not trying to say that's the only proposal, but that's one idea. Well, the, um, I haven't read that book, but I don't, there's no indication in the text that that's what happened. In fact, there's no indication at all in the text of how God takes care of any of the plant life, really. There's a, there's a, apparently a living olive tree by the time the dove gets sent out. Um, going beyond the text to suppose how God, how God took care of the animal life or not the excuse me the 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 plant life not the animal life yeah i mean i would that, that's dangerous the text we know from the text that okay there was at there's life there was plant life beforehand and there's plant life afterwards um my assumption that i would make would be that maybe this is miracle number 3 if we've got miracle 1 is 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 the animals bringing bring bringing sustaining and and redistribute or bringing sustaining and distributing the animals miracle 2 is providing and removing the water Miracle three could be sustaining the plant life, or sustain, yeah, sustaining the, the plant life in some miraculous way, sustaining the, uh, um, so intentionally, God is, God is bringing the flood to intentionally kill specifically those things he wants to kill and to preserve those things that he wants to preserve. How did Noah and his family survive? He preserved them. He did not intend to kill them, but he did kill everything that he intended to kill. Did he intend to kill the plants? They don't have nostrils. There's no breath of life in plants. Same with I don't know, with fish or whatever, but oh, whales are mammals, so therefore they've got nostrils, and their nostrils are their blowholes, and like, okay, whatever. Like, <laughs> you, you can nitpick that if you, if, if you really want to, uh, but the, the fact of the matter is that God killed what he intended to kill and left alive that which he intended to preserve. So maybe that's miracle number three, is that God preserved those things which he wanted to keep alive, which would be the animals, which would be Noah, the eight people on the ark, and which would be the plants. Okay, I'm cool with that. Three miracles. We're up to three miracles. Um, how, how did God do it, though? Flanting, floating beds of plants on which insects were? Like, uh, maybe he could have done that. I'm not going to say that that's something to believe because the text never indicates any of that stuff. I can tell you what I assume, but, you know, what they say about assumptions. If you don't have those kinds of explanations, you need something else. One way or another, you've got to supply all these additional miracles to make sense of the text. Three miracles. So I hope, I, I hope I'm articulating my concern there in a way that's respectful. The, the three miracles are the God, the God, God does the, it takes, does the animal stuff, the water stuff, 
and the keeping alive stuff. And all three of those things are specifically mentioned. God brings the animals to, uh, to Noah. God is the one who provides the water and removes the water, even if he uses wind or whatever to do it. And God is the one who, obviously, who created the plants and stuff like that. But God is the one who chooses which things die and which things don't die. So those three miracles, you don't have to add them to the text. They're already there. Now, the exact details of the miracles, you could fight over if you'd like to. But those three miracles are already present in the text. So that works just fine for a worldwide flood. None of these five points have have really found a chink in the armor for the uh, for the the reading of the text that it's a worldwide flood. Full, but also gets across how difficult this is and why a lot of us would say if the language is... It's only difficult if you expect to explain every single detail of a miracle in kind of a naturalistic understanding. It's not that difficult if you're like, God brought the water. God moved the water. He moved it away. God brought the animals. He, he moved them away. God preserved the things he wanted to keep alive and God killed the things he wanted to kill. Okay. <laughs> there's lots of miracles in the Bible where God doesn't give details where like, you know, the angel of death goes and kills. Well, you're going to have to assume there's another detail. If you know, what if the angel of death is breaking into, into, uh, in Egypt, he's breaking, breaking down doors or, you know, people close their windows and stuff. You have to assume, you know, you have to assume extra miracles. No, no. God says he does stuff in miracles and then doesn't necessarily give us all the details of how he does it. This is no different. Is, can be permissibly and responsibly used for a local reference that seems like it makes a lot more sense. Not really. Okay. No. Now. There's nothing in the text that says local. There's nothing in the text that indicates local. And if you have a local flood, you still have all these problems. You still have, how did the animals get to the ark? Well, you're supposing a miracle to keep the animals alive in the ark. Because if you've ever seen a bunny rabbit, you know, running through the, the open plains, they get swooped up by hawks. You have to assume a miracle for the people to take care of the, however many animals you assume are on the ark. 40, 30, 20, 100? <laughs> you have to assume a miracle and God preventing them from killing each other. And they may have different climates and stuff. Well, I mean, I suppose if they're all living locally, they won't have those different clients. climates, excuse me. But you don't actually sidestep the need for, for miracles uh, unless you think that there's like some natural explanation of all the water just flooded a local area. And that's just kind of like a natural thing that happens and God directed it to happen this one time. Like there, you still have the same problem with the three miracles that you have to account for, the water, the animals, and the preserving of life. To be clear, if it's a local flood, it's still miraculous. Yep. The transportation of the animals, the sending of water, God's communication with Noah, all of that oh, so, requires so, 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 God's yeah. meticulous involvement, his intervention, and so forth. Right. So this means that it is no less likely that it's a worldwide flood than a, than a local flood because the miracles are still required for both of them. But the point is that the kinds of miracles associated with a local flood seem to fit better with the transportation of the animals, the size of the ark, the number of people involved, the amount of time involved. It sounds like he's saying instead, the types of miracles would be less impressive. The types of miracles required for God to move something within, move animals within a local area to the ark versus the time, the type of miracle, um, the magnitude of miracle required for God to move animals from another continent to the ark. That's just a distinction of magnitude, which again, we know for God is not a problem. This is a human problem of, well, I believe that God could make the universe. I just don't think he could do it in six days. I believe that God could flood an area. Excuse me. God could bring water. God could bring animals. I just don't believe he could do it from another continent. I just don't believe he could do the, the whole the whole water. There's there's no reason to make that distinction and say, well, you know, God can lift a thousand pound boulder, but he can't lift a 10,000 pound boulder because bigger miracle is more challenging and therefore it's more likely that God did a small. There's no reason that a smaller miracle is more likely. None. None whatsoever. And there's nothing in the text that indicates 
a local flood. So there's nothing, there's no reason to believe that that's what happened. Etc. At the very least, allowing for a local flood should not be written off as a liberalism or as just not taking the Bible seriously. The, the difficulty here is, is why do you come to the conclusion? What in the text leads to your conclusion? Nothing. Nothing in the text leads to the conclusion of a local flood. The only, you have the conclusion of a local flood from an external source. What is it? Is it the Bill Mars of the world? Is it the liberalization of uh, the higher criticism of the Bible where they try to remove all the miracles? I can't say. I don't know what leads you to your conclusion. I've never heard what leads to your conclusions. I just know the way that you, you say you can read the text in such a way that allows for these conclusions. What led you to your conclusion? Now, if what led you to your conclusion is kind of liberal influence, okay, then that's an argument that this is a liberalization. But yeah, I agree here. Uh, it isn't necessarily a liberalization of the Bible, but I, you know, it's not a good reading of the Bible as far as I can tell. It's not, it's not letting the Bible dictate the truth of history. It's letting these other factors, whatever they might be, liberal or otherwise, uh, dictate what you believe happened historically and then trying to find a way to read the Bible that allows for that. As so often happens. For me personally, you know, I, just to speak personally, I'm, I'm not just a total theology nerd who's, in, who's uh, I mean, I love theology, but I think about these things at a pastoral and personal level. I've been through my, my time of working through, how do I think this through? I know a lot of others have as well. For me personally, adhering to a local flood as what I think is much more likely is my best effort to submit to the text and what I think it's intending to convey. Where in the text does it say local flood? Where in the text does it indicate local flood? What leads you to your conclusion from the text? What is, and if it's not in the text, where is your source for this belief of a local flood you feel that the text has to conform to somehow? In its own context, reading the Bible responsibly and well as an ancient document that is true, but using ancient language and an ancient sphere of reference. Okay, consider, if, if you think I'm off base, I'll really listen to what you have to say, because I've made an appeal that you listen to my case, and it's the least I can do to listen to your response uh, in return. So I will promise to do that, and hopefully as we talk about this and work through this, it won't detract from our larger mission as the people of Christ. All right, thanks for watching, everybody. God bless. Let me know what you think in the comments. Don't forget to like, subscribe, all that stuff. Take care. He's a great guy, isn't he? I like Gavin Ortland. I like Dr. I keep calling him Gavin as if, you know, we're on a first name basis. I think he knows I exist, maybe. Like, but Dr. Ortland, I don't mean it as a disrespect when I say Gavin instead of Dr. I just used to having conversations with people about, hey, did you see what Gavin posted or whatever? I'm not that familiar with him that I should be calling him by his first name. But um, uh, I do appreciate, I do appreciate that he does stuff like this. This is some very valuable stuff. I think it's worth having a conversation about. And I think... It's worth sitting through the entirety of, of what, he, what he has to say about this. Uh, I fully recommend subscribing to the Truth Unites channel. I've got better content, uh, better, more well-researched than, than my stuff. It just, it's, it's a shame he's not Lutheran, because I think then he would get everything right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Orland, for, for putting this together. And for anybody who's still listening at this mark, please uh, listen to the stuff he has to say. But with all teachers... Um, Listen, not necessarily with an open mind, but with an open Bible. Where does the text lead you to your conclusion? This is, this is a question that I want you to ask. Anytime somebody brings up a theological concept, where does the text lead you to that conclusion? Somebody starts talking about the Trinity. Where does the text lead you to the conclusion that, say, for example, um, the 
the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Where does the text lead you to the conclusion that, you know, double predestination, that the body and blood are actually present, that transubstantiation, whatever the question is, whatever the theological concept is, where does the text lead to that conclusion? You should expect, maybe not every single thing should be, is explicitly stated in the text, but you should be able to come to correct conclusions from reading the text. Uh, and if somebody's got a, a theological concept and it's not from the text, where does it come from? Where, you know, there, there are truth, there is truth that is, is t- discoverable outside of the Bible, outside of Scripture, of course. But how can you evaluate a claim if you don't know the source of that claim? And this is something that's, that's really good to, to get back to a lot. In any case, uh, this was a lot of fun. Um, uh, specifically to you. God bless you. Thank you for all the stuff that you do. Uh, God bless you to everybody and take care.